ready? Yes. All right. Welcome to The Gallery Gap, a podcast that explores inequity in museums, exhibitions, programming, and collections. My name is Claire Kovacs. And I'm Melissa Moore. So, it's March. It is. National Women's History Month. Not the sole focus of this podcast, but certainly the primary focus of this month's episodes. So, we were thinking that in honor of that, we should play a little game. This game is called Hashtag Five Women Artists. Well, maybe before we start that game, we should give a little background? Eh guess. Okay. Well, I'm going to give some background. Okay. Okay. So hashtag five women artists is an initiative of the National Museum of Women in the Arts, which is located in Washington, D.C. And the museum has a year-round mission to address gender imbalance in the art world, which readily fits into this theme of the podcast. But during the month of March, the NMWA has an increased reach in its programming on women artists. One example of the social media campaign, which is in its second year and going strong, is this hashtag five women artists. Right. So this um, we pulled this directly from their website because I think it's inter- we think it's interesting. Ask someone to name five artists and responses will likely include names such as Warhol, Picasso, Van Gogh, Monet, Da Vinci, all male artists. Ask someone to name five women artists. And the question poses more of a challenge. So I know, as an action item, I mean, they nailed it, though. They got it. No, yeah, absolutely. As an action item, the NMWA started a social media campaign, as Claire mentioned, to see how many people in institutions really could name uh, a mere five women artists. And after overwhelming success last year, this year they repeated the program. So um, they've had more than 200 institutions from all 50 states and 22 countries, as well as um, representation from seven continents that have already signed on. And they don't just put this out there. They're also practicing what they preach. Right. So I thought maybe we could start off this episode with their starter list. And we'll post a link on our website, on the WBIK website, to their website so you can check out these artists for yourselves. But I'm going to just name uh, their hashtag five women artists before we start our own game. Lavina Fontana. Maria Martinez, whose work is also in the ATMA collection. Sorry. Yep. Clementine Hunter. Lola Alvarez Bravo and Lee Krasner. So again, um, check out what the museum has to say about these. Go to the link on the website. Really interesting, and we don't mean to gloss over them, but we were thinking since we've signed on to this challenge, maybe we start with the five artists that we we would pick ourselves yeah, yeah. from our organizations or not. Okay, I'm going to go first. Sorry. Okay, yep, no, nope, go for it. Okay, totally doing that. The first woman artist who comes to my mind is Rosa Bunner. She's in our collection at the Figgy. She was born nearly 200 years ago and achieved a successful career as an artist, which was definitely not the norm at this time. And um, I think because of that, her life has really served as an inspiration for generations of women artists. And while um, while this may, like her pursuance of art as a career may have been less than traditional, her artistic practice was incredibly traditional. So she gave a lot of attention to her subject matter, studying it seriously in sketches before even committing it to canvas. The The Figgy's painting that we own is lovely. It depicts a very fine and very realistic looking cow's, um, cow's well, it's a butt. Yeah. It's the cow's butt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's currently on display. And I have to say, it's probably, for, for whatever reason, 
you know, who really knows the reason, but it's probably one of the most popular mm. stops on the tours when yeah, the kids no come idea. for the study I have no trip. Idea why yeah, that yeah, might yeah. Be a popular work. Engaging the youth. Yeah. yeah. So, well, I'm going to I'm going to start with my number 1, but I'm going to take it in a slightly different direction. I know that we plan to talk about a number of women artists in our collections, both well, we've done it in the past and we're going to continue to talk about women in our collections in future episodes. So, I thought I'd mix things up a bit and name five women artists that I wish we had in our collections. Oh, I think that's a good idea. Yeah. So I'm going to start with number one, Ana Mendieta. Mendieta was born in Cuba, and she and her sister came to the United States as refugees in 1961 under Operation Pedro Pan, and she was just 12 years old at the time. She was in refugee camps at first and then eventually placed into an orphanage in Dubuque, Iowa. And the trauma of that separation of her family and her culture and her homeland became the foundation of her artistic practice. She really felt unmoored and isolated in the Midwest in a culture that was unfamiliar to her, only with her sister and, and, and not at that moment in time being reunited with the rest of her family. Reflecting on her work, she wrote, and I'm going to quote her here, I have thrown myself into the very elements that produced me. It is through my sculptures that I assert my emotional ties to the earth and conceptualize culture. You know, I find her to be so thoughtful and articulate. Um, now, she has a connection to our alma mater, the yes. University of Iowa. Yes, yes. She is a fellow alumna, earning her MFA in the Intermedia Program under Hans Brader. She utilized her body and the earth and other organic materials blood, fire, feathers, wool, I could keep going, as the subject of her varied practice. Her practice included photographs, it included films, performances, and prints, and that's just naming a few. And But unfortunately, her career was very brief. She tragically died when falling, or pushed, from a window in New York City in 1985 after a fight with her husband, the minimalist sculptor Carl Andre, who was later acquitted of her murder. Okay. So I'm, I just, I have to say it, Mendieta is a rock star. I mean, really, truly an artist that hopefully, hopefully our listeners will, um, will explore further. Yeah. And I, you know, I'm, I'm just going to jump. I mean, I can't just let this go. Because, yeah, I mean, please don't. <laughs> Keep going. So, um. I, I just want to reiterate that we, we can't forget Mendieta. Uh, one of, one of the most frustrating things about Mendieta's career after her death is that while her husband, Carl Andre, continued on this trajectory of success and we continue to see retrospectives of his work, her work is shown few and in, in instances few and far between. So this is something that is very frustrating, not just to me, but to many others. And it has actually spurred a number of protests. Since the openings of Andre's exhibitions in the 1990s, there have been protests to remember Ana Mendieta. Most recently in 2014 and 2015 in the United States at Dia Beacon, the No Wave Performance Task Force did two very strong and evocative protests under the guise of, we wish Ana Mendieta was still alive. And so I encourage our listeners to take a look at those. And it's still going on. Most recently, the Berlin Hamburger Bahnhof created an exhibition around Andre, and there were protests there too. So so this is this is something that, you know, we, we talk about women's art and their lives intersect in spaces. And I just, I, it, it, it pains me to think about what we her work is so strong to think about what it what else we could have seen from her if she had been given the opportunity to live. Oh, I agree with that completely. Well, thank you for kind of 
taking us a bit further (laughs) on that. I appreciate that. And I have a feeling our listeners do too. Um, Returning to the five women artists theme and my number two, while I love you, your idea of highlighting artists you wish were in the collection, I'm going to stick with an artist who is in the Figgies collection, but whom I wish I had known about earlier. Mm -hmm. So this is Yuriko Yamaguchi. She is working and living out of Washington, D.C. and creates amazing art that really examines the, um, the convergence of science and art and how that translates into visual forms. So interconnected is one of the themes that she works with a lot. And so for anyone who has been to the Figgy in recent years, this is the colorful, large-scale piece on display in our grand lobby, um, primarily red and blue. It's intricacy, though. You may not even fully comprehend it when you look at it. It may just seem like one total piece, and again, very large. But when you go up close, you'll notice just how detailed the the small pieces are and how they're connected to create the bigger piece. So we, we're going to circle back to Yuriko in a future episode when we discuss artists and the environment. But for now, uh, just promise me that the next time you visit the Figgy, you will look at that piece and try to figure out what each of the individual forms are. And I'll give you a little hint, two hints. Well, I'm just going to tell you, mushrooms and berries. They're mushrooms <laughs> and berries. <laughs> so go try to find them. <laughs> it's really fun. And um, it's, it's a fun exercise for all of us to remember to look but it's also a great way to engage uh, first-time visitors to the museum if you're bringing family or friends or also children. So, Claire, uh, moving on, who's your number two? All right. Sticking with artists who are not in our collection, Eva Hess. Uh, she was born in Germany in 1936, and her and her family fled the Nazis, ending up eventually in the United States. Hess dealt with anxiety throughout her whole life and worked through it to eventually acutely focus on her art making and her sculptures are known for their use of unconventional materials. So we see rubber, cord, fiberglass, latex, not things that you normally think of when you think, okay, I'm going to create a sculpture. What am I going to make it out of? At least, especially at that point in time. Uh, Her techniques are also associated with feminine occupation, so wrapping, winding, threading, and her works vibrate in this liminal zone between the abstract and the visceral. It connects to the body. Mendieta's work connects to the body. Hess's work also connects to the body. And her work has affinities with minimalism, but it refuses to really be pinned down in, in any sort of way. And perhaps in another connection to Mendieta. Her life ended too soon, uh, but she she died of a brain tumor in 1970. But her work has been hugely influential to the next generation of women sculptors, from internationally known artists such as Petta Coyne to artists in our own region, such as the ceramic sculptor Jennifer Rogers, who teaches at Coe College in Cedar Rapids. It's really amazing what Hess was able to accomplish even during that short period of time um, while she was making art. And again, the legacy that continues, as you mentioned. Uh, in a similar way, speaking of artists who have really been able to just contribute so much in, in non-traditional ways, mm-hmm. perhaps, I'd like to talk about Deborah Butterfield for a minute. Uh, so for those of you who have been to the Figgy or maybe your kids went during a field trip, the horse is <laughs> one of our more iconic pieces um, or recognizable pieces. And that's by Deborah Butterfield. And you can see it as soon as you either leave the elevator or mm-hmm. come up the stairs. I mean, it's right Right. So we have Half Moon, and right now we are borrowing Cascade, who is the recumbent um, figure horse, Mm -hmm. and the two of them together really create this 
almost a sense of companionship between two living, breathing mm-hmm. beings. So I think that that speaks to the power that Butterfield has and is mm-hmm. able to put into her artwork. But um, take it back just a step. She's best known for these large-scale sculptures of horses that look like driftwood or even horses that are made from found material, especially from from areas of the world that have more chaos and, in fact, war. So she likes to give new life to the driftwood pieces or to to metal that she's found. Of course, driftwood is ephemeral. She wanted to make sure that these horses could live on longer than just the, the natural life of the woods. So she creates molds from the driftwood, casts them, and then combines the cast pieces of driftwood back into the sculpture of a horse. That's kind of a lot of words. Sorry, we'll put a picture up on the web on this one. Um, basically, the horse look the the detail the attention to detail she gives to the patina of the horses makes it look like they're still made of driftwood, even though they are in fact right. made of metal. Right. Um, so make sure that you stop by and see that they are purposefully confusing, and I think that that again, it, kind of like what I said with Eureka, it gets you to really look and to consider what is being communicated. I mean, obviously, Deborah Butterfield has a love of horses. She speaks out about that openly and, and has her entire life. But also, it gets you thinking about how things are made and what the choices are that the artists have made. Um, I think one, this is a good time to make a pitch that you should take a tour at the Figgy. You should. Our docents are amazing. Or, hey, <laughs> I'll, I'll give you a tour. Whatever you want. Come <laughs> on down. Okay. So, I'm going to move on to my number three. Good. Okay. I'm excited for this. So, so number three for me is is Julia Bandini, who is probably unknown to many people, unfortunately. We're going to go back in time a little bit to the 1870s. So this goes and connects to my own research on my dissertation. I did my work on Italian artists working in the late mid to late 19th century in Italy. And the first round of my research focused on this group called the Macchiaioli, which were based mostly in Florence. And as I did my research, I realized that we were just talking about men. And um, as I started to go back and look a little bit more closely, there's an important uh, an, an important work by an art historian named Norman Brody, who was very influential to my development as a scholar. And in her book, she's an important feminist art historian, there is just a paragraph about this woman, Julia Bandini. And so it was one of those things where a light bulb went off in my brain saying, okay, yeah, no, there were definitely women around the the Macchiaioli and where are they? And so Julia Bandini for me is the beginning of, you know, these, these types of questions that we shouldn't have to be asking anymore. But unfortunately, you know, you see those protest signs that say, I can't believe I still have to protest this shit. I mean, it's still, I, I have a similar feeling in terms of my, my research. I can't believe that I, I have to go back to this basic question of where are the women and how do I locate their work? And Julia Bandini's work is, is colorful. It is painterly. She was a student of an artist named Silvestro Lega towards the end of his career, and his eyesight was fading, and his detailed paintings started to coalesce into these more more painterly flattened compositions. And while he hated that work, Bandini actually responded to it in in a way that it, it, it catalyzed her own practice. And so I only know of two works of Bandini's that I am aware of that exists, but it's one of those stories that we can continue. 
I am I am actively continuing trying to find her. So that's uh, that's my number three, Julia Bandini. Um, okay, so I'm going to move us forward then. I'm going to give a local shout out to Isabel Bloom. She was born in 1908. Um, if you live in the Quad Cities. If you don't, you may not own an Isabel Bloom, but you certainly have heard of her, seen examples of her artwork. They are uh, in personal collections everywhere. You can purchase these as gifts. Um, uh, she began making art as a child, and her legacy lives on even after her death. She passed away in 2001. And she was studying art in a number of places, including but not limited to the School of the Art Institute in Chicago, as well as Grant Wood's Stone City Arts Colony. And um, when she was creating in, in what her workshop that still exists continues to create are concrete casted, fine, finely finished by hand sculptural pieces that are inspired by studies of life. And so... Um, I think of when I think of Isabel Bloom, when we do have a couple of pieces of hers in the figgy, I think of though, my family and my great aunt Linda. And every time she comes to the Quad Cities, she's excited to see us, but she also can't wait to stop by Isabel Bloom's <laughs> store and workshop so she can see what else the, the team has produced. So I feel like even though um, these sculptures may not be known outside of this sphere and the Quad Cities are even in this region because great aunt Linda's up in Minnesota, uh, mm-hmm. she's, she's incredibly important to our community mm-hmm. here. So I'm going to move on to my number four, who is Nina Abney. Uh, Abney is an Augie graduate, and her paintings, which for the most part are very large-scale, deal with issues of race, celebrity, sex, religion, police violence, the Black Lives Matter movement, and art history. After Augustana, where she graduated with a double major in studio art and computer science, she went on to the Parsons School of Design in New York, and her work, Class of 2007, which was the work that she produced for her MFA show, really put her on the map by reflecting on what it means to be a minority in majority white spaces. This is also something that she reflected on when she was here at Augustana. The work in... in inverts race, so Abney depicts herself as a bespectacled, gun-toting blonde woman, while her white classmates are transformed into black prison inmates, wearing prison-issue orange. The work caught the attention of the Rubel family in Miami, who purchased the work, and it was part of an important exhibition from their collection, 30 Americans, and right now she has her first retrospective, which is called Royal Flush, currently on view at the Nasher, and, and her work is overwhelming and and powerful and i mean she is still early in her career yes i mean this is a very strong young woman artist yes yes it seems like a number of the artists you've included on your wish list have really pushed limits with their work um certainly abney but really everything you've talked about so i'm curious i'm actually curious to jump ahead to your fifth artist is that also something that i cut in line is it here and and jump to five i'll let you i think i called you a naughty monkey last time that's okay that's okay Okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna um, I'm gonna go to Coco Fusco. Uh, Fusco is an interdisciplinary artist and writer. Her work explores, and maybe there's a theme here: politics, gender, race, identity, and war. And again, similar to Mendieta, her work is multimedia. She's working in projection. She's working in closed circuit television, and then she's also very interested in performance with audience participation. Most recently, she's been very involved in the J20 art strike and other critiques around number 45, so her work is very political. And I think the reason that her work is important to me 
and how her work is important to me can be best expressed in actually reflection for her on why the Gorilla Girls are important to her. Oh, excellent. So I'm going to take it back to the Gorilla Girls, and I'm just going to read a brief um, quote from um, Fusco here. This was was part of an essay that she wrote on – for the Walker Art Center when the Gorilla Girls did their Twin City takeover in 2016. I believe it's 2016. Sounds good. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So this is Fusco's words. 22 years after seeing the Gorilla Girls in action at the Palladium, I was invited to be on a panel with them at MoMA's first conference on feminism and the arts. I was nothing short of ecstatic to be sharing the stage with such living legends, but I also sensed that their simian guises upped the ante as far as how to appeal to the public. So instead of walking on stage in an artsy black getup and reading a paper, I put on military fatigues and was using, I was using for a performance about the joys of being a female interrogator on the War on Terror and congratulated the powerful women in the art world for having espoused conservative values that mask persisting inequities. I wasn't so much trying to throw down as to step up. To this day, the Gorilla Girls remind all women artists that the most effective way to convey painful truths is to make them hilarious. Well, it may take a while for those who hear you to change, but in the meantime, they won't forget. So I, I, I feel like Fusco's work embodies that, and in many ways, she's an inspiration for me. And, um, and yeah, that's... And I was not familiar with her, so I'm so glad that you included her. I know that your wish list probably comes with a pretty big price tag. Mm -hmm. So if any of our listeners have been inspired, uh, Claire works at Augustana. (laughs) (laughs) Send me a check there. To the Augustana Teaching Museum of Art. There you go. (laughs) Um, So for my last woman artist of this challenge, I'm going to take it pretty close to home. I'm actually going to choose my mom, Barb Huting. She is in St. Louis and has been making since way before... I was alive. She and my father earned their BFAs from Washington University in graphic design, and this is where they met. Both were totally rocking their careers when they decided to have children. How very lucky they were. Yes, I am amazing. Yeah, yeah. Did you like how I put that note in? Yeah, that so was you, a... could, you, you read that right in? Yeah, yeah. yeah you're welcome. <laughs> I just set you up to, uh, to, to pat yourself on the back or give yourself a gold star. <clears throat> Not as we that do I need here. any reasons to do that, but thank you. I... <laughs> Sorry, no. <laughs> oh, you. Um, so... Okay, so my mom, she had, my parents had me, and when they did, she decided to back away from her artistic career in order to really prioritize raising my sister and me. This was a joint decision. I I actually just called my father and asked him as nicely as I could, you know, did you have that conversation when you guys found out that you were pregnant? Did you guys talk about who would stay home with the child, the brilliant child that was about to burst forth into (laughs) this world? (laughs) Sorry, just kidding. Um, And And you mean your sister, right? No. (laughs) Jerk. Did she pay you to do that? No. Um, Yeah. No, my father said, well, I don't, he said that he didn't recall specifically having that conversation there. You know, he was in a position at an architecture firm that had more benefits and it, it almost made sense for him to continue to work because my mother had the opportunity to do more freelance based on the network that she had already created. Mm -hmm. So she could continue to work in the early days. But of course, when she realized how wonderful I was, uh, yeah, she, she really pulled back. (laughs) I'm just kidding. He also said, I thought this was funny. Oh, dad. Uh, I would have been horrified. <laughs> I wouldn't have known what to do at all <laughs> with a baby. And I think that it's because there wasn't a support system in place, a network for uh, for fathers or for men raising children mm-hmm. in the 80s the way that there is today. So and there still can be work 
Oh, absolutely. It's not like we're. Oh, no, no, no. We're not there. We're not there. But I I thought it was endearing of my father to say that raising me by himself during the day would have been horrific. Uh, (laughs) Anyway, so my mom decided that after she resurfaced from the chaos of, you know, raising us, that she would get back into the field of graphic design, but it had gone online. It was a totally different practice by that time. So she ended up making her own way back into the art world based on her interests and her passions at the time. Mm-hmm. And I think that the work that she she does now and the way that it has evolved organically as she has grown as an artist is spectacular. So she uh, reimagines neglected materials into beautiful jewelry. And I love my mom. So I just wanted to include her because even though I'm not a jewelry maker... And I don't have any real basis for for talking about it. You know, I haven't studied that. That's never been my focus. She inspires me and always has in terms of creativity. So that is my number five. But, um, you know, this is an impressive list that we've created, and mm-hmm. it's only skimming the surface, oh, yeah. obviously. <laughs> <laughs> so we challenge our listeners uh, to get online, think about if you can name five women artists. Of course, we kind of gave you a few to choose from. So hopefully after this episode, at least you can, but maybe you have some of your own (laughs) that you'd like to think about. Um, One that I'd love to go back to, Claire, from from the NMWA's initial list, though, is Lee Krasner. One of the rarely displayed works of the Figgy is by Lee Krasner. This is her primary series, which is a series of three lithographs, Bluestone, Goldstone, and Pinkstone. Yeah, Krasner is recognized is a recognized artist and part of the canon and uh is still but it's still important to include her when we we talk about equity in the arts she was born in brooklyn in 1908 and just to take it back to isabel bloom same year yeah much different form right right and sought formal training at several new york city institutions perhaps the most influential of her instructors was the german abstract painter hans hoffman this is exciting. A woman in the early 20th century empowered to pursue formal instruction. In fact, it almost seems equitable. <laughs> almost, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> so that quote from Hans Hoffman that I think is one of the more famous ones in relation to Lee Krasner, um, he said of his student and colleague, this is so good, you wouldn't know it was done by a woman. This was his compliment to Lee Krasner. <laughs> and <laughs> if you... If you I don't want to say if you like that quote, but if that quote um, infuriates you, infuriates you or go. elicits any sort of emotional response from you, you have some feels. <laughs> gives you the, all the feels, um, check out the Gorilla Girls Bedside Companion to the History of Western Art, yeah. which yeah. was published, published in 1998. Is this like your Bibli? Yeah. <laughs> so it, uh, unfortunately, you know, that quote seems so familiar. I mean, as I as I mentioned, I was working on these these Italian artists in the 19th century. Some of them lived into the 20th century, one of them named Giovanni Boldini, who's a really amazing artist. Um, maybe his respect for women has a little bit to be desired. And that comes out most clearly if, if we talk about another woman artist, just for a moment, Romaine Brooks. Uh, there was a party in which those two, Boldini and Brooks, met and Boldini said to her something along the lines of, I, it's amazing to me that a woman who, who has arms as nice as you can be a good painter. You know what I do with my nice arms? I punch you in the yes. face. <laughs> you said that to me. <laughs> but, but Krasner was a first-generation Abex artist. So abstract expressionism, 
Yeah, we could. In a... <laughs> you know, we could have a whole separate podcast on what I abstract. Think we could is. have many, many, many books. Yeah. So uh, there are <laughs> there many, are. many, many books on abstract expressionism. So I'm going to just talk about it in a quick nutshell. Um, it was the early 1940s. We started to see new artistic ideas coming to the fore, primarily in New York. And so we see this group of loosely affiliated artists that began to react to the world around them, both in terms of the artistic sphere, but also in a in a great greater political sphere, cultural sphere. And they started to shift away from and, and react against what was being made in the world around them. They were never part of a formal group, um, but they did share some common concepts, an emphasis on dynamic and energetic gesture. And you might start to be thinking of some names here. I'll name some in a moment. Which was in contrast to this more cerebral focus um, of, of the work, the earlier work. Their work even broke away from accepted conventions and was primarily abstract, um, even when they were connecting it to some sort of reality. And their their artworks were often reflections of their individual psyches, which was actually coming out of surrealism, which they were responding to, sort of ingesting and 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 moving forward. So, who are some of these names of abstract expressionists? I'm going to start with one. The one the, close to home? So, yeah. I'm going to start with Mercedes Matter. Um, so who is another woman abstract expressionist in the uh, in the first generation. But then we can also move on to some, some famous names that you've probably heard of before. Jackson Pollock, Willem de Kooning, Robert Motherwell, Mark Rothko, Barnett Newman, Clifford Still. I mean, we could just keep yeah, going. Yeah, it's, so, it's so, substantial. Yes, yes. And, and it's amazing how each artist is is functioning in some way, shape, or form within kind of this um, this category as Claire loosely defined it, and yet they're also different Right. when you yeah. walk into a gallery or you're studying them. So uh, Mercedes Matter, just a quick... Um, just a quick note there. Some of you who came to the Figgy Gush, when would it have been? A few years ago, yeah. would have seen a retrospective that Knox College and the curator Greg Gilbert, who's their historian there, put together on matter. But getting back to Krasner, you know, Krasner worked for the Works Progress Administration, or the, the WPA's uh, federal art project, in order to support herself in the 1930s. It wasn't all art all the time on, right. on her own terms, right. which is true for many today. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, the WPA, just in case you're not as familiar, it was created in 1935 as part of FDR's New Deal. During its tenure, the WPA really it employed over 8 million people, many of whom had been impacted by the Great Depression. And it wasn't just jobs in public works like many thought. Uh, it wasn't just about infrastructure, but also it was in the arts. So Krasner's work with the WPA's mural division really provided her with a valuable experience. She was also an active member of the Artists' Union, an American abstract artist, and her interest in activism stayed with her throughout her life. I feel like, really, I feel like this involvement with activism demonstrates her enduring spirit. Mm -hmm. uh, in knowing what came next in her life, I can't help but return to the quote, nevertheless, she persisted. Yes. <laughs> nevertheless. In her late 30s, uh, Krasner married fellow artist Jackson Pollock. And it's not unknown that Pollock had his issues. In fact, um, and we'll, we'll make a pop culture reference here, uh, the 2000 film Pollock that was directed by and starring Ed Harris provides a fairly accurate representation of Pollock's struggles. And during their 11 years together and after his unexpected death, he was in a fatal car crash, if uh, our listeners don't know, Krasner dedicated herself to promoting his artistic legacy. Uh, but she was a fully established artist before they met. Uh, often overshadowed by her husband, Krasner declared, and I'm quoting her here, I'm always going to be Mrs. Jackson Pollock. 
But I painted before Pollock, during Pollock, and after Pollock. Right on. <laughs> in fact, uh, Krasner, in fact, Krasner was responsible really for introducing Pollock to certain key figures within the, that artistic circle, such as Willem de Kooning and, uh, and the critic Clement Greenberg. Yes. Uh, yet it wasn't until the late 70s, really, long after Pollock's death, that she was fully recognized for her talent as an abstract expressionist painter. And this, I would say that this really came in the form of her inclusion in the group exhibition Abstract Expressionism, The Formative Years. Yeah, and in 1978, Krasner was finally accorded her rightful place alongside Pollock and Rothko and others in that exhibition you just mentioned. And her final years also brought numerous honors and awards and publications. And her retrospective exhibition, which began at the MFA Houston and made its way to MoMA in 1984, the year of her death, was widely celebrated. It really was. Uh, the press release that MoMA put out for this exhibition is a great resource, so I'd like to quote from it for just a moment. Totaling approximately 50 works from the years 1946 to 80, the exhibition is the first full retrospective of the paintings of Lee Krasner. It recognizes her achievements as a leading first-generation abstract expressionist and chronicles the development of a career that remained vital for more than half a century. Although Krasner's reputation has long been obscured by that of her husband, Jackson Pollock, the paintings on view proclaim the strength, individuality, and innovation of her work. And nevertheless, she persisted. And nevertheless, she persisted. Hashtag. (laughs) (laughs) Most recently, the Denver Art Museum organized the exhibition Women of Abstract Expressionism, which highlights Krasner's contributions to the field. So we've we've covered some pretty basic information on on Krasner. And, you know, as we're as we're winding down, because, again, we've only really skimmed the surface. (laughs) Yes. Uh, As an art historian, Claire, who do you recommend as a leading Krasner scholar or as leading Krasner scholars for those in our, our audience who really want to dig in but aren't quite sure where to start? Right. So, um, so I would say Ellen Landau, most definitely. But full disclosure, she was one of my professors at Case Western Reserve University. But she wrote the, uh, the catalog raisonne and a number of important articles on, on Lee Krasner as well as on uh, Mercedes Matter, by the way. But another great source on... Krasner is Gail Levin's biography of her. So those are those are two two places I would suggest. That's a go. great yeah, that's a great jumping off point for our audience members. And of course, we will have resources available on the web. So check out WVIK. Next time we'll be celebrating the Day of Transgender Visibility by talking about a Chicago-based artist whose work is intersectional and autobiographical, Kiam Marcelo Junio, and. Um, we're excited for that. I think that we've led up to it a little bit here and there, yeah, maybe yeah. touched little on. crumbs along Yeah, the way. little breadcrumbs. So we're really excited to be f- uh, focusing on that during the next episode of The Gallery Gap. In the meantime, please remember to subscribe to the podcast. You can download it on iTunes or Google Play. You can follow us on Facebook, or you can visit WVIK to listen. And make sure that if you do, you're supporting public radio because yeah, they do so much radio. for us. As always, thank you to the Augustana Teaching Museum of Art, the Figgy Art Museum, and WBIK for your continued support of this project. A special thanks to our production team, Lacey Scarmana and Alfredo Monteca. And this podcast would still just be a mere idea if it wasn't for the generous sponsorship of Paterson Pate's design. Thank you so much for making this program possible. And last but not least, thank you to all of our listeners. We'll see you next time. Well, that's a little creepy. Maybe I won't. You are creepy, Creeper. Thank you. We won't so see much. you unless we're in your microwave. <laughs> you catch my joke. <laughs>
<laughs> See you next time. Thanks again. <laughs>